0: Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? All right, it's great to be with you. Uh, If you've been tracking along with our series, we've been having a lot of fun this summer learning about leadership, as Steve and John just told us. Last week, we learned from the organizational prowess of one of the Old Testament's finest leaders, a man named Nehemiah, who was the mastermind behind this most ambitious construction project. He was in charge of rebuilding the broken down walls and gates of ancient Jerusalem. And last week we looked at how he orchestrated teams and deployed resources and placed people in just the right spots in such a way that the rebuilding and the restoration of the wall was happening uh, smoothly and efficiently and along the entire circumference of the wall simultaneously. This was a marvelous symphony of effective leadership, wasn't this? Wasn't this? Yes. Okay. All right, here we go. It's me now. This is, we have reaction and interaction with me. Okay, we good with that? All right, cool. If you're new, this is normal when I get up and teach. Now, as the wall went up, so did the people's spirits. It was like for the first time in 140 years, temple worship began again, and the air was filled with the praises of of the people. And the sacrifices, the aroma of, of God's worship, was, uh, worship to God was filling the air. And as, as the wall was being restored, we learned, so was the relationship between God and his people also being restored. And so there were no gaps and everything was happening uh, quite amazingly, all because it was well communicated and well organized. Nehemiah was getting stuff done. He was a getting stuff done type guy. You know people like that, who you just give them stuff to do and they just get stuff done? Nehemiah was just like that. It was magnificent. But that was chapter 3. And now we come to chapter 4, and we quickly discover as we dive into this material that there's this nasty little thing called opposition. Opposition and it rears its ugly head in full force. Resistance begins hitting God's people from all sides, and we learn from this that it takes more than just good vision casting and wise planning to do God's will, it takes the heart of a lion to face down the forces of opposition to come against us that come against spiritual progress. So that's what we're gonna cover today. We're gonna ask this question, how do effective leaders uh, handle opposition? here we go. What do they do? How do they react? Uh, What's going on in their hearts and and, and what's God doing in and through them in the face of of this resistance? So there's a lot here to learn, but there's also a lot to apply to our own leadership contexts. And so that's what we're going to do. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead, open up, power on to Nehemiah chapter four. We're going to look at verse one and we're going to be all in this chapter in and out the entire time today. So you can just kind of hold your place there. So let's go ahead and start reading then in verse one of chapter four. Here's what it says. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? burned out as they are. And then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was his sidekick, said, well, yeah, I mean, what are they even building? I mean, even a fox, a tiny little fox, climb up on their dumb wall and break it down. Verse four, hear us, our God, for we are despised. This is now Nehemiah praying. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins, God, from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the faces of the builders. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. All right, let's just pause there. There's a lot happening, but one thing I want to just note from the beginning here is the timing of the opposition. How far along does verse 6 say? Look back at verse 6. How far along does it say that the project was at this point in time? That's right. Halfway through. What's it about the halfway point on stuff? What is it about that, right? What always happens when we're halfway done with a project? Uh, How many of us finish? How many of us have half-done DIY projects at home just like scattered around our property, right? Right? Or how many half-read books, half-watched movies do we have in our lives? Now admittedly for us in these things, we just get bored or distracted or the shiny new thing comes along our path and just kinda leads us to the next thing. But in this case, a more powerful factor is at play. For we see God's people were meeting this fierce resistance as a result of success as they hit the midway point. Nehemiah faced this abuse From those who were threatened by, he was succeeding at this. Like the wall was actually going up. No one would have opposed Nehemiah if he was failing. Is that correct? You know, here's what happened. All right, he rolls into town and it kind of, people see him, and he's like, who's, they're like, who's this new guy, and he's talking about building this wall, and nobody's really paying attention because he hasn't done anything. But now, Nehemiah, now you're on the radar. Now people are taking notice because you're really doing what you said you were going to do, and now the real battles begin because why? Because you're a threat. You're a legitimate threat. And so if we back out of this for just a second and then kind of look at this and try to apply it, here's a principle to think about. Progress brings pushback. Progress brings pushback. Is this not true? This is true, isn't it? In in pretty much every area of our life, we can see how any type of forward motion will will be met with resistance. This is personal, this is vocational, academic, spiritual, financial. How come every time we build up our Dave Ramsey emergency fund and we get there, what happens? The washer breaks, the dishwasher melts, the car breaks down, the kids, you know, they break something and and we have to fix it, right? It just erases that emergency fund. I, I lost last year, I think I might have mentioned this, I lost about 30 pounds last year and, um, and that was fun. It was really fun because towards the end of it, I was just walking down the hallway in my house and my wedding ring just flew off and it was just like, ah, <laughs> uh, rolling down. It was kind of like uh, Frodo in the one ring. I just couldn't get to it. And it um, that was, that was interesting. That really happened. But about halfway through, about halfway through, about 15 pounds into it, it's like my body just woke up. It's like, figured out what I was trying to do. And it was like, hey, hey, fool, you think I'm just going to go down that easy? And it began to fight back. It began to fight back. It began to punch me back. And so there's this idea that progress brings pushback no matter where the progress happens. But here's what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Bible teaches. And maybe this isn't the most encouraging thing you're ever going to hear, but it's just the truth. The Bible teaches us throughout that there will always be opposition in this life, this side of heaven. There will always be opposition until we get to heaven. Even when you're smack dab in the middle of God's will, guess what? You're going to experience pushback and resistance and headwinds and opposition. It's just going to happen. It's just part of it. You know, it was God's will for this wall to be rebuilt and restored, wasn't it? And yet God did not remove the opposition. It's also God's will for you to grow strong in your faith and to make a maximum impact in this life for his kingdom. And yet also God does not remove the opposition in your life. Why is that? Well, There's probably a lot of reasons, but I know one of the reasons is, is about our response. Because if we respond properly to this, the resistance that we experience will drive us towards greater dependence upon God. And that's exactly what he wants. He doesn't want us to move forward in our own strength, he wants us to move forward in his strength. It also gives us a greater determination in our hearts to do what he's called us to do. And without that opposition, that divinely, sovereignly kind of worked out opposition, we would never have the opportunity to grow in our dependence and to grow in determination. And yet, the opposite is true of this. If we yield to the opposition, if we start to give up and start to to, to settle, right, we can get disillusioned. And what can happen is mediocrity sets in. But here's the thing Nehemiah doesn't yield, does he? He doesn't settle. This is why I love this guy. Don't you love Nehemiah at this point of him trapping tracking along with this? Isn't he just like, isn't that a guy you'd want to kind of hang out with? Isn't that he's a guy you kind of want to follow around and like maybe, maybe uh, go to work with and grab a coffee with and talk to? I really like this guy. Now, getting back to the text, you might remember that this isn't the first time that these uh, guys who are talking trash, they show up. If you, if you remember back in chapter two, verse 19, here it is on the screen. When Sanballat... Okay, so that's the guy we just read about, and then Tobiah, he's the sidekick, and then there's a third dude, Geshem. When they heard about this initially, right, when Nehemiah gets into town, what did they do? They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So these guys, they show up in chapter two, and in here in four, they're haters from the start. They're just haters from the start, and they're falsely here. They're falsely accusing Nehemiah and the Israelites of Rebelling against the empire, the Persian empire, and this was baseless accusation. We've covered this because Artaxerxes, the empire, act- the emperor actually sent Nehemiah to finish this project, and he even supplied him with the resources to do so. So it's no surprise that Sanballat and his crew shows up again in chapter 4, but this time you see the threats are more uh, forceful. They're, they're, they're angrier. They're more despicable than ever, and so here's the principle More pushback, more progress. More pushback, more progress. Everybody say this with me. I want to just see that you're alive and breathing today. Here we go. More pushback, more progress. Oh, isn't that true? Now, notice Nehemiah here in this interaction, like how he responds in in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. He's not like attempting to prove that he's innocent. So there's this accusation that you're a rebel and he's not like, well, let me just, let me show, let's have a meeting and let me just lay out all my paperwork. And he doesn't do any of that. I love this because this is higher level leadership. You know what he says? He just says, hey, uh, hey, guys, God's going to build this wall, whether you're in it or not. So we're going to arise. We're going to be a part of his plan and we're going to build. And you two, Sandballot, Tobiah, and your other friend there, whatever your name is, you have no right in this. You have no present future here you actually didn't have a past here you have no legacy here and you have no future here and nehemiah notice he's really strong in his response but here's the thing he doesn't do he doesn't exchange mudslinging he's not trolling he's not uh, blistering these guys with angry rebuttal nor is he retaliating now here's something to consider effective leaders don't stoop to the level of the haters Effective leaders don't do this. They don't return like for like. They don't exchange punches. Christ-centered leaders learn to pump the brakes when it comes to this low-level stuff. Have you noticed this? God's people say, here's what we're supposed to say. You know what? Haters gonna hate, but ballers gonna ball. That's what the young people say. That's what they tell me. Someone hearing this right now, you're experiencing, you're experiencing what I'm talking about, what we're reading about. You're experiencing trolling, hate, and the temptation is to exchange barbs. You're getting cut down, and so the question you're asking yourself is, do I strike back with my sharp wit and my ability to uh, you know, trade punches here and cut the person deeper than they're cutting me? And, and here it is you know, for most of us, we could do this because we're probably smarter and our, 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 our ability to verbally like, it's just it's probably, you know, low-level people are like, they're easy to get over on, aren't they, right? But here's the thing, the Bible teaches us don't do it. Don't do it, it's a treadmill and once you get on the treadmill, all it does is wear you out and you don't get anywhere. I think Ravi Zacharias, one of my favorite apologists and Christian thinkers, he said it the best. Here's how he put it. He said, when you throw mud at someone else, You not only get your hands dirty, but you lose ground. (laughs) Think about social media applications on this. Think about gossip chains at work in terms of how to apply this, or or maybe the extended family dinner table. Nehemiah teaches us, okay, there's this kind of low-level smog. He's like, stay above that. Fly above that. Stay focused on what God's called you to do and stay hopeful in God. Well, that's one type of resistance, that's one type of opposition, and if we study this out a little bit, we're gonna see that there's quite a few other varieties in this chapter, so that's what we're gonna do for the next few minutes. We're gonna lift them out and look at how Nehemiah responded. So again, to review, false accusation is the first type of, of opposition that leaders face, and this is like, again, purposeful misinformation, finger pointing, it's asserting that you're doing something wrong when you're not, and this, by the way, can be extremely damaging to someone's reputation. We saw the same tactic used against um, Esther and Mordecai, didn't we, earlier in this series. There's that little weasel named Haman. Remember Haman? That little punk. And he was accusing Mordecai of something that he didn't do. And so the Bible takes this very seriously. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is devoted to this. The Ninth Commandment says this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, So naturally, if God says, this is not what you're to do because this is evil, well, this is exactly something that an evil person will do to try to bring you down. So that's a thing. That's a thing. Okay, so a false accusation doesn't work. Let's move on to the next one. Adversaries may use the following tool, and that's mockery and sarcasm. Mockery and sarcasm. I think our culture is generally pushing the limits on this all the time, isn't it? Everything is mocked, everything has a meme, the sarcasm is like being uh, sort of produced to a fine art nowadays. And Sandballad and his cronies are, are, are giving out the ancient version of this when they're asking a bunch of these rhetorical mocking questions, right? We read them, you know, what are you guys doing? Do you think you can do anything worth anything? And, and, and it's just dripping with just contempt and sarcasm. I picture them laughing a lot in between each question. And by the way, it says here in the text that they were doing this in front of and within earshot of the Jewish people who were actually building the wall while they were talking smack. While they were working. They're making fun of this. This is such a cheap way to oppose somebody, to mess with somebody, but it can be very effective, just like false accusation can be. Think about this. Think about if, uh, if you hit a nerve, like you know how to push somebody's button you kind of know how to get in their head. This can really take the wind out of a person's sails, can't it? I mean, uh, has this ever happened to you? Has anybody ever pushed your button like this? Kind of known some insider information about you and mocked you or, 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 or acted sarcastically towards you? If that's ever happened to you, you're in good company. I can actually say this, I think, fairly confidently. In scripture, if that's something that you've experienced, all the great leaders in the Bible, also experienced the same thing. Think about that. Joseph, Moses, Esther, David, Jesus, all of them. Now, how does Nehemiah respond to this? This is, is, um, I think, a a fascinating part of the chapter. Nehemiah responds, again, not with throwing a counterpunch. He responds with prayer. He responds with prayer. Actually, several times when the enemies are coming against him, his first response is to pray. That's the first thing he does. Chapter 2, that's what he does. Again, in verse 4, we just read. Let's look, at, look down. We didn't read this, so look a further, little bit further ahead in verse 9. Here's what he does when there's further accusation and further stuff thrown his way. It says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night. So Nehemiah was always praying, wasn't he? He was either doing the work of building the wall or he was doing the work of prayer. He knew that the physical actions of restoration would not be as effective as they would be if he didn't first call on the name of the Lord. Now, what can we learn from this? This is is really interesting. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, then get this out, out of it. If effective leaders oppose the opposition through prayer, this is our greatest weapon, prayer. Oppose your opposition. You're getting opposition, then your response is to build a wall of prayer around your life, to build a ring of fire of prayer, a shield of prayer. We let God fight our battles first and foremost. You know, I I think a lot of us have experienced seasons like this, but pastors are no different. Uh, In our line of work, sometimes people, um, you know, will oppose us for a variety of reasons, just like in any profession, I guess. But three years ago, we hit a real tough season along the lines of this. And it was actually not directed at my wife and I. It was directed at our kids. And it was in the form of bullying. Has anybody ever had your kids bullied? Isn't that just the worst thing as a parent to watch that happen? And this was intense. And it was kind of happening from a specific set of of kids. and, And then their parents got in on it. Ooh. It's... This was so tough. How many of you know that, man, I wanted to throw down on them dads? <laughs> I didn't. Christy and I, we tried to do everything we could, you know, the right way. Nothing was working. And it was beyond frustrating until we figured out that our only recourse was prayer. And so we just prayed. We prayed at night, we prayed together, we just we just prayed tears of prayer we prayed tears we prayed tears and frustrating prayers we we prayed careful prayers it was so tough and our prayer eventually became in this process we were forced to just pray this lord change them or move them change them or move them lord and you know what here's what happened we went away on vacation for a week and we came home and we drove into our neighborhood. One of these families lived in our neighborhood and we drove in and before we got to our house, we passed their house and there was a for sale sign in their front yard. (laughs) So we were like, okay, God, you really do answer these prayers, you are our shield, you do go before us. Change them or move them, maybe that's the prayer you need to pray this week. Here's the thing, God fights our battles first and foremost. He is actually, you know one of the names in the Bible for God, there's many names? He's the Lord of hosts. You know what that Hebrew word host means? It means that he's the Lord of the armies of heaven. He is the great commander of the Lord. He's the, armies of heaven are at his beck and call. And so in prayer is where we engage the battle. And Nehemiah models this so well for us. All right. That's a lot of couple things here. There's more here. There's there's another weapon that can be used against us, and that's the weapon of anger. It says that Sanballat got, he got angry, really, really angry. It uses the terms furious and indignant. And these are like Hebrew words that just with thick with particularity It just means that this guy was bent. I mean, he was really, really bent. And eventually, their anger morphed and evolved into more aggressive threats, threats of violence, until it kind of culminates. Look at verse 11. Look down at your Bibles or on the screen. Here's what the enemies did. They said this, before the Jews know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. So it had devolved down to death threats. Their anger was just putting the psychological pressure that that was just like this weight upon the Jewish people. And it was meant to intimidate. It was meant to wear down. It was meant to cause them to lose focus and to exhaust them. And so the question is, well, why were these guys so angry? Was this just like racism or was there more to it? Well, the, the, the commentators tell us there was more to it. Several great trade routes passed by Jerusalem at this, at this time. And so this was kind of a hub. It was a center of economic activity. And this guy, Sanballat, it says he was the governor of Samaria. And what that meant is that every time a trade transaction happened in his his jurisdiction, he got a piece of it. This guy was skimming off the top. And a free and independent Jerusalem meant naturally that some of the trade was gonna be bypassed out of his jurisdiction into the jurisdiction of the Jewish people, and there was nothing he could do about that. And so this wall... And this development was threatening him where it hurt the most, in his wallet. Always follow the money trail. Isn't that true? So what does Nehemiah do here? This is really good. Here's what he does, is he actually responds to the threats by adjusting the workflow to now include a security force. The people needed to be protected. These were real threats. These were not idle threats. The emperor was a thousand miles away. There was a lot of damage that could be done before things got under control. And so Nehemiah took no chances. Look at verse 16. Here's what he says From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers, he had officers, he made like a little army. Officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. And those who carried materials did their work with one hand and then held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. And then the man who sounded the trumpet, that guy stayed with me, Nehemiah says. Well, this is really good, isn't it? Because work now is still progressing, but it's going on in the midst of warfare. And so the people were, were working basically with a trowel in one hand, and they were building, but they were also looking around, popping up, seeing what was around them. They were situationally aware if there was a threat. And they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And then, and then if there was a, an attack that came... Nehemiah says the trumpet guy was with him. And so he and Nehemiah would run to the point of attack and they would sound the alarm. And then everybody was trained to come to the point of attack and defend where the attack was coming from. So so there was a security force. There was an adjustment there. And then there was training on what to do if the threat became real. This is incredible leadership. It illustrates how leaders can think on their feet and adjust things. New pushback, new plan. New pushback, new plan. You see, adaptability and flexibility in today's leadership world, that's a a trait that a lot of writing is going on in the field of leadership development. It's a highly sought after leadership trait. And Nehemiah teaches us that effective leaders adapt to new challenges. Flexible leaders have the ability to change their plans to match the reality of the situation. How about you? What new challenges are hitting you right now? Again, this can be family, this can be work, this can be spiritual, this can be financial. What new challenges, what new threats are coming against you? You see, some of us are trying to solve problems that are now obsolete because conditions have changed. And so the model that we're using to solve the problem isn't working because there's new threats, so I'm praying, as I was writing this sermon, my prayer for all of us at Cornerstone was to, to ask the Lord to give us a fresh set of eyes to notice what new conditions are already there and give us the wisdom to figure out how to adapt to these new threats. Okay, that was one type of opposition. There's, there's one more that I wanna cover and it kind of encompasses the whole, uh, the whole body of work here. And it's called fear. Fear. So false accusation, mockery, sarcasm, anger, and fear, this is basically an accumulation of of the effect of of the previous ones. Fear had begun to set in. Look at verse 12. It says, then the Jews who lived near them, them is the the sand ballots and, and the crew that was against them, they came and they told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So the Jewish people were starting to get scared and they went to Nehemiah, it says 10 times over, which just really means they just kept coming to him over and over and over again, expressing their concern about how unsafe they were feeling. And what this was doing was, it was was causing them again to lose focus. It was keeping them from doing anything significant when it came to building the wall. And this, of course, is something, this idea of fear that is common to us as well. Fear can keep any one of us from doing things that God has called us to do. And there's different flavors of fear, isn't there? In this case, it was fear of, like, of attack, but there's fear of failure. There's fear of the unknown. There's fear of messing up, and so why should you even start in the first place? There's the fear of, I don't think I have what it takes to get this thing done. And all of these types of fears, the result is they cause us to back off. They cause us to step away from what God's calling us to do. They they cause us to, to be way more risk averse than we should be. Has anybody ever been there? Has fear ever kept you from doing something that you knew God had called you to do? You know, Nehemiah teaches us a valuable lesson on how to handle this. He teaches us a very simple lesson. He simply says, Don't quit. Don't quit. Keep working. Keep moving forward. Effective leaders don't give up, they don't give in to fear. They don't allow fear to dictate the course of their actions. You know, one of the best ways to fight fear in your life is to stop thinking about how scared you are and just get back to work. Fear distracts from doing God's work or doing God's work distracts from fear. Which one do you want? The choice is ours. The choice is ours. I love this guy because he looks fear straight in the eye and he just went back to building He makes adjustments, yes, but work resumes. Ah, so good. So these are the tactics that were all used to oppose Nehemiah and God's people. So let's review these responses, okay? Here's here's a slide, in case you're taking notes, you can take a picture of it. Effective leaders don't stoop to the level of the haters. Effective leaders oppose the opposition through prayer. Effective leaders adapt to meet new challenges, and effective leaders don't give up. If we study this, we automatically, again, think about our own leadership context and how this applies. And this chapter could easily relate to those of us who have had to overcome voices of opposition. You know, you probably have people in your life that don't believe in you. You probably have people in your life that don't think you can do it. So we can relate to this. Anybody who has come against any type of progress in our life, this is absolutely relevant. And as we grow in our leadership quotient, we begin to learn the fine art to pinpoint the type of opposition that's coming against us and then respond accordingly. That's the goal. That's where we're all headed. That's how we're growing. Now, I wanna talk about this on one other level. And so I kinda of wanna take what we just learned and just can, we just, can we just shove it in here? Can we just get it in here and lock it in? Can we just lock it in? Okay, by your stone-cold silence, I just, I'm assuming you're agreeing with me. There's another dimension. I want us to kind of put on a, a, a gospel lens now and look at this through the eyes and through this perspective as Christ followers. And here's what I want to say. In light of the gospel lens, we have to be aware that we all have a common enemy. We all have a common opposer. And he's not only our enemy he's also the enemy of jesus and his name is the devil he actually has several names in the bible but the most common one is called satan or the satan it means accuser he's the accuser or the prosecutor that's what also that word means peter wrote about this in the new testament He wrote in 1 Peter 5, be alert. And he's talking to Christian people. He's talking to folks like us. He's saying, be alert, guys, and of sober mind, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And so Peter is teaching us something very interesting here, that the devil isn't some archetype of evil, the devil isn't some metaphor, rather the devil is a real real supernatural force of tremendous evil and power, and that he is resisting all of us. All of us have the same enemy in common. You know, other New Testament writers, they talk about the devil, they describe him as the father of lies, or the strong man, or the great red dragon. The God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. And the Bible teaches us this, that any material opposition that we face in this life, whatever form it takes, if it's through a person, if it's through a circumstance, if it's through a bad decision, whatever form it takes, many times it is the devil who is really behind it, and we're not to be naive to that fact. The enemy behind the enemy. He's the real enemy. Remember this, we've taught about about this before, okay? In any good story, there's always layers of bad guys especially when you watch movies that have multiple installments. There's always like one movie and the hero goes against the bad guy, but then at the very end you figure out that the bad guy had a boss. And the next movie is about fighting the boss of the previous bad guy, the boss of the boss. And then the next movie is what? It's the boss of the boss of the boss bad guy. And usually in these movies, the boss of the boss of the boss of the boss of the boss is always some Russian mafia guy living in some smarmy penthouse. And there's a big battle in the end when the ultimate boss behind all of this trail of of trash and evil is vanquished. And the Bible tells us this, that same story arc is true in the big reality of life, but the enemy underneath all the layers at the bottom is called Satan. That's who we're fighting. The good news for us is despite this powerful and cunning creature that tries to undercut us, The fact is is that his power is minuscule compared to the power and the majesty and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. I know. Truth. What I just said is truth. It is more real than the chair you're sitting on. He is the father of lies. How do you fight a lie? You fight a lie not with another lie or another half-truth. You fight it with the real truth, the capital T-truth. And one of the most encouraging things about Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel is because Christ's power is sovereign and because his perspective is infinite, even Satan's attempts to attack God's people only further God's purposes. Even Satan's best attempts to thwart you, God will then somehow flip the script and turn it around in your life to further you along in your journey with Jesus. Oh my goodness, he's the master at doing this. All of Satan's attacks on Nehemiah, do you know what they yielded? Two things. They yielded a wall that is still standing today. You can go see it. I've been there. I saw the wall. I laid on it. The whole group left, and I'm like, I'm just, so I didn't look like an idiot, and I'm just laying on it, and I'm like feeling the fruit of what it means to. Fight the opposition head on. And it's real, and the wall is touching me, and it's there, it's still standing. That's one thing it yielded. You know what else it yielded? It yielded a book of the Bible. The historical account of this story has provided encouragement to countless believers down throughout the centuries. Do you really think... That that is what Satan had in mind when he was working through Sanballat, when he was working through Tobiah as they heaped on, heaped on the abuse and pushback towards Nehemiah. You know what this is? This book is a big old jokes on you shoved in the face of Satan. <laughs> we see this all over the Bible. In the book of Acts, every attempt by Satan to stomp out the church and to crush the church led to what? It led to the church exploding and expanding in new villages and new towns and new homes and new hearts. And the greatest example of this, of course, is the cross. Just when we thought the worst thing was happening, it appeared that the worst possible thing was taking place. The Son of God was being killed. He was being murdered hideously on this Roman cross. But we look back at that event and we see that Jesus was doing the very best thing that he could do for us. He was purchasing our salvation through his broken body and his shed blood. What Satan meant for evil on Calvary, Jesus flipped the script and he furthered his plans through an incredible miracle. Brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone, listen, listen to me. I know then in many of your life, many of your lives, you're facing significant opposition. Some of you are being tormented. I know for some of you in the corporate world, I talk to you, it's really brutal out there. You know what's fascinating is it's not just the competition, it's the people in your own work groups and when you start to separate yourself from the pack, your own people cannibalize you. And they pull you down and try to yank you back down into reality because they're threatened at your success. And this happens time and time again. I get that some of you are facing significant opposition and obstacles, and walls are not something that you're building. Rather, walls are something that you're smashing into with your head. Sometimes it feels like the walls, you're not even going towards them, you're sitting there and the walls somehow move towards you just to fall on you. But I need you to hear me. You have a Lord and Savior who is in control and who is using the opposition in your life to do some secret things, to do some deep level things in your character and in your heart. He is trying to and attempting to in this opposition shape you and mold you into a beautiful vessel of his love and his grace and his strength. And some of you, you know this, you're seeing this happening right now and you're like kind of lost, but think back in your past. Has God used opposing forces in the past to further unfold his good work in your life? And if the answer is yes, you can already look and see now the godly purpose of some of the pain that you're experiencing because God has a bigger plan in your current painful situation. The past proves it. So here's the, here's the perspective that the gospel teaches us about Satan. I mentioned that his name is the accuser or the prosecutor and the image you get is that Satan is this um, kind of greasy lawyer in a courtroom with a cheap suit and a bad haircut. And he's standing in there, and me and you were there. And he's looking at the judge, and he's looking at me and you, and he points his finger. He says, Dirty, rotten, liar, fool, guilty. Oh, man, it just, it's just real. But here's the message of the gospel, is that it's not just me and you in the courtroom because Jesus Christ walks in. And you know, uh, (laughs) there is a name for Jesus, and his name is advocate. And you know what that literally means? It means defense attorney. And so every time that Satan points his finger at us and he hurls an accusation, Jesus steps right in front of it. And he's, uh, and he's between us and Satan, and the accusation hits him instead. And when he says dirty, Jesus says no, clean. When he says liar, Jesus says no, redeemed. When he says guilty, Jesus says innocent. And it's because we, by faith, are in him. We're tucked back in. Christ because he lived a perfect sinless life and he is innocent he is clean he is giving us redemption and justification by the great work of the cross and so the gospel teaches us that we are not the things that the Satan says we are the gospel teaches us that our opposition is cosmically shut up by Jesus Christ and one day one day the hammer of justice will fall The hammer of justice will fall hard. The Bible teaches us this in the book of Revelation. And the hammer of justice for those who are in Christ will not fall hard on our heads. It will actually fall and smash the head of Satan. And once and for all, his lies and his stuff will be forever, forever closed up. Remember the cross. An ugly day on Friday was turned into a beautiful day on Sunday so too with whatever opposition that you face. May I pray for us? Lord, it amazes me that somehow when we can get so deep into an Old Testament text and, and seek to understand what was happening and, and draw application from it, I'm amazed that if we continue to follow the motif of what we're learning, we bump into you. We, 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 we somehow come across the gospel and in this case, Lord, the, the Lord of heaven is fighting our battles. In this case, the true opposer has been vanquished at the cross by the power and love of Jesus Christ. And I pray that all of us, Lord, no matter what we're going through, would rest in that fact, would rest in Christ, would rest in the fact that you are our shield, you are our strong, our strong tower, you are our protector. I pray, God, that you would help us as we seek to do the things that we can do as leaders to effectively make an impact and as we fight against opposition in our life, help us to exhibit what it means to be a Christ follower. And so, God, we just come to you today and we just ask for your help. I also pray, Lord, that if there's anybody in here who has not yet said yes to you, Jesus, in the gospel, that today they would, right here in their chairs, they would just say, yes, I need that. I've been trying to fight my own battles and I just can't. I've come to the end of my strength. I've come to the end of myself. There's no way I can resolve the things that are hitting me. I pray, God, that you would would intersect their life right now and that the gospel would resolve the things that they can't resolve on their own. Jesus, you are the better Nehemiah. You are the true Nehemiah. You are the true one that breaks that breaks the power of the enemy and that fixes the cosmic brokenness of our lives and in this world. And we thank you and we love you and we praise you for it. And we just offer up our prayers to you with a seed of faith, God. And we say all these things in your name. And all the people said, amen.